As you know, our podcast covers the places that matter in the Seattle area, and this has included both the built environment, especially architecture, as well as the natural world. For example, our last guest was Nick Bratton of Forterra, who explained how and why his organization has already placed 300,000 acres of Pacific Northwest wilderness into conservation. Our conversation today will encompass both design and nature. We'll learn how new landscapes are envisioned and created. And our guide is a Seattle resident who is also one of the country's most valued landscape designers and whose work, which has spanned multiple decades, includes well-known public spaces like Seattle's Chihuly Garden and Glass, as well as the private estates of celebrities and people of wealth. Today, we're going to explore garden design as a mixture both of art and nature, and we'll look at some of the challenges of creating gardens that are timeless in the sense that they may be here long after they're created, and we'll look at how the beauty of a garden impacts us both as humans, as individuals, and in community. Our guest today is Richard Hartledge. Richard is the founder and CEO of Land Morphology. His award-winning innovative designs are renowned as emotive, immersive spaces that incorporated sophisticated horticulture, artful detailing, and historical knowledge that heighten the experience of the natural world. And his work has been featured in the New York Times, Architectural Digest, Garden Design, Met Home, Fine Gardening, the Seattle Times, and other publications throughout the world. He's also a writer and teacher and has given over 350 lectures worldwide and contributed dozens of articles for national and international publications. And stick around at the end of the show, you'll get a chance to learn how to sign up for a series of Zoom lectures from our guest. Hi, Richard. Hi, Edward. How are you? Great. It's great to be able to be here with you. So your firm is Land Morphology. The firm is Land Morphology. Where We're, is it in Seattle? We are in Belltown at Second and Wall, and it's a pretty nondescript building, but lots goes on in it. I would imagine. <laughs> so Belltown is kind of where you are now. Can you just share a little bit about your journey, how you wound up in Seattle? So I started my career in private estate management, and then moved into public garden management, and I was recruited here to manage the Elizabeth Miller Botanical Garden. Okay. They're located in the Highlands, and they're open by appointment. And I started Great Plant Picks, so that's a great resource for everybody who's interested in learning what will grow well here. Okay. And then eventually, I left the public sector and went to work for a multidiscipline firm and spearheaded their landscape architecture department. I did that for 12 years and then started land morphology almost nine years ago. Okay, great. And you've sort of worked on both coasts. It sounded like originally some of the estates that you worked on were in North Carolina, New Jersey. So I've moved around because I have a... Because of my 15 years in estate and public gardening, I know a lot about plants. <laughs> and so most landscape architects and garden designers are limited by their knowledge of local flora, and I have lots of experience in multiple places. Yep, so you have that versatility because you're dealing with plants and climate is important. So we'll probably talk about the future a little bit later, kind of the design and kind of what you're doing currently. But I'm curious about landscape as historical artifacts, like some of these private estates you know, you've become a curator. I think you're on the. Were you involved in Dunn Gardens? I was on the board of Dunn Gardens for a while. Yes. And so I've been on other horticulture and garden boards. Yes. So it's interesting how a lot of the sort of earlier in your career you were involved in kind of curating, kind of envisioning, setting the future for these private gardens that oftentimes evolved into semi-public. Places. Yes, we even have clients that we have um, started large projects for. 
and will go into trust and become public spaces upon their death. So that's pretty cool. I mean, there's a long tradition of that in America. Can you elaborate on that just for those that aren't familiar with it? Well, the biggest and the most well-known would be Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Delaware. And that was Pierre DuPont's property. It is the most heavily endowed public garden in America. And that was originally his private estate. And so it's a huge attraction the entire year long. And they actually got more visitors in the winter on the holidays because they have immense conservatories, which they do Christmas displays in. Gotcha. Huh. So. And then Betty Miller, I think, also had a kind of an important role in sort of Seattle history. And You're good. <laughs> well, I did my research. It's very interesting. So, yeah, so I think that she was also a very important person. She was so. very important. Um, she was friends with Dixie Lee, a previous governor, and she spearheaded no billboards <laughs> on the interstates in Washington State. And she also assisted with Freeway Park and the plant selection. She gave a significant amount of money to start the Center for urban horticulture at the University of Washington, and she also started the Northwest Horticulture Society. And that's also a fantastic resource for learning about gardens. So I'd love to know what you learned from her, how she may have influenced you, because she seemed like she had very strong opinions about public spaces and garden spaces. (laughs) She had very strong opinions, (laughs) and she had passed away by the time I arrived in Seattle. Oh, okay. 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 So you were brought on to help curate the garden. So I was the first director of the garden. Okay. And it's primarily a plant collection. Uh-huh. Um, and so I expanded the collections along the themes in which she collected plants when she was alive and living in the house. So the Elizabeth Miller Garden was her residence. Gotcha. And it's very limited in terms of visitation, which was why I had the idea to start Great Plant Picks because it takes a lot of money to keep that garden up and people have. Uh, very limited access. So myself and the board of directors wanted to reach beyond the confines of the garden itself. Okay, and then what can you just expand on what is Great Plant Picks? So Great Plant Picks was conceived to be a collection of professional horticulturists from Eugene, Oregon, to Vancouver, British Columbia. And they get together four times a year, and we would go out and look at plant collections. The program still acts and functions like this, and they would choose the best adapted plants for Cascadia, which is the area between Vancouver, British Columbia, and Eugene, west of the Cascade Mountains. So it's a maritime, dry summer climate. Awesome. And then you've obviously had a number of different businesses and roles, but you've worked with a lot of celebrities. Um, we have worked with celebrities and, and uh, lots of wealthy people. People, And so I'm assuming a lot of these commissions were private gardens and residences? They're private gardens. We do a lot of large-scale work. There are 15 of us now at Land Morphology, and we're always looking to hire talented people. And we're landscape architects and horticulturists and designers and artists. So it's a mixed group of people. Yeah. And when a private individual contact, regardless of the scale, when they contact you, is there anything kind of consistent that they are seeking to achieve in hiring We're you? We're known for our complicated and detailed planting design, but I started the firm because I really wanted to do great planting design and plantsmanship in conjunction with beautiful, functional, usable spaces. <laughs> okay. And that can run the gamut. You know, that could be for two people, that can be for a million people depending on the scale of the project and who the client is and what the brief for the project is. And then why did you choose the name uh, Land Morphology for your business? 
I didn't want to name it after myself. <laughs> um, I would like the business to go beyond me. And I wanted it to exemplify what we do. So morphology is the shape of things. And so we shape and deal with land. Awesome. Well, good. So I invite our listeners to bring something into the studio to share that represents, you know, that's important to them. So I see there's a... I actually brought you a gift. Okay. (laughs) There's two things here. Well, yeah, I brought you um, the field guide to Chihuly Gardens and Glass. And it's currently out of print, but it goes over all the details of the garden at Chihuly Gardens and Glass and all the individual plants. Okay. Well, maybe we could just jump into that. Um, One of the things that struck me about this place is that it's not called the Chihuly Museum. It's called Chihuly Garden and Glass. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, Um, yeah. So we worked with Dale Chihuly and his studio. So uh, as we continue this discussion, I'll just refer to the whole group as the studio. Okay. Because it's a whole group of very talented individuals. And Dale does not like the word museum in association with his work (laughs) because he calls them exhibitions. He thinks that that celebrates a living artist. Uh And so it was conceived to be an indoor and outdoor experience. Okay. And so the garden itself is three quarters of an acre. Okay. And we work directly with the studio to determine what art features would go in there and then what to plant and how to shape the space in conjunction with those pieces. Okay, and then uh, and then for Dale Chihuly, if I could ask, why was it important for him that it be really outdoor-focused? You know, what, as part of his vision as an artist or, or his intent with this place, why did he begin with outdoor rather than an indoor? So... There are three lines of work at the studio. You can go to Traver Gallery in Seattle and buy an object. Um, and then they do traveling exhibitions. And so those are global. Right. Um, they go, uh, say, the Victorian Albert in London or the Desert Botanic Garden in Phoenix, Arizona, or actually Scottsdale. So he loves working in both indoor and outdoor spaces because they have direct contact with that. And the expression and experience of the art is so different depending on if it's indoor and outdoor. Like in a museum setting, they tend to be viewed as objects within a space. But because so many of the themes of the individual pieces of art and how they've been developed over time relate directly to nature. Uh So then there's a seamless connection in the garden. Wow. Okay. Great. And how did that bring up opportunities for your firm, maybe distinct from other? Because a lot of the work you do have a you know component of your focus is art in gardens and art in spaces. A lot of our clients collect art at various levels from, you know, say, Plinza to just local artists. And so how they uh, are incorporated into spaces. And we, so if you look at our website, you will notice the variety of work is not around a specific style. So I'm very interested in both the history of landscape architecture and horticulture, and predominantly as it starts in the late 1800s, and then as it moves forward through all the various contemporary styles. And so the best gardens, and I call them gardens as opposed to landscapes, because I think gardening is a highly personal word. It's really about expression of both the owner and the people who help to make the garden. And I think those become the most compelling places to be whether they're public or private. Uh-huh. Yeah, and a garden to me implies something that's very created, whereas a landscape is something that is more found. Well, that, landscape architecture in general talks about landscapes, but, you know, it all becomes about semantics. I just 
I gardened. I mean, gardening is about a craft. Mm -hmm. I don't say that we practice an art form. Mm -hmm. I think um, art asks questions and design answers questions. Now, there obviously is a dialogue back and forth there. Like, the best art also must be well-crafted in addition to asking minor or very profound questions. And certainly what we do has to be well-built and thoughtful. And we're often solving problems. You know, if the client wants a fire feature, where does it go? If we've got to build something over a septic field, in the case of the waterfront, um, you can imagine what Alaska Way is. That is an immense corridor of not only traffic above, but utilities that are infrastructure for the city itself below. So we have to solve all those problems and then create something that's beautiful and habitable on top. So can you talk a little bit about the waterfront? And also, you know, we'll talk a little bit about um, Seattle itself. Seattle isn't a place that has, compared to many cities of its population, as many parks and public spaces. We have so. lots of parks. We don't have lots of gardens. And oh, I have very strong feelings about that. Okay. <laughs> having lived around the country and constantly seeing other places. So the Seattle waterfront is is being redeveloped once the viaduct came down and the tunnel was installed. The lead consultant is Jacobs Engineering. It is a state highway. Mm -hmm. So people forget that. The lead creative designer is James Corner Field Operations based in Manhattan. They also have offices around the country and they're best known for the High Line. They were the lead designer on the High Line. And we were added to the team about four years ago to do the planting design. So that's not an internal expertise of theirs, and they often bring in outside consultants that are regional or just understand the theme of the projects that they're developing. And I knew some of the principals at James Corner, and then through introductions here through the city, they're like, you're hired. (laughs) Let's go. Awesome. Good. How has that gone? Uh, It's gone extraordinarily well. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, they're incredibly talented and they're super open. And I get that question a lot, especially (laughs) from other landscape architecture firms in the city and other architects, because the assumption is if they're um, here from New York, that it's their way or the highway, and they are extraordinarily collaborative and Uh very respectful. And it's just been an incredible experience. What an amazing project for the city as well. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing project for the city. So a moment ago, you drew a distinction. You know, you said Seattle has many parks, but not many gardens, and that you have strong feelings about that. And that went way over my head. But can you share a little bit about that? I think Seattle does a great job with their parks and active use and as nature preserves with hiking trails like Seward Park. But when you look at the trends happening in America, there are these crossover spaces like the High Line or all the parks around Manhattan that interface with the waterfront. Or you look at San Francisco and what's happened on the Embarcadero or Chicago and Millennium Park. And these are private-public partnerships. And I think Seattle is actually late to the game in embracing what the private sector can contribute and why that is of value to the city. I mean, there was a huge amount of concern on the waterfront for the business improvement tax, and the major landholders were really concerned about that and negotiated that down. But those taxes make great places. They and do. those landlords benefit directly from that space. Huh. You know, that is embraced in Chicago and Atlanta and New York, particularly, and Miami and 
I just think we need more of that. Gosh, there is such... A, so my feeling, and I granted I'm a local person, my parents came here before the World's Fair. I was in my mom's belly when going up the Space Needle in 1964. Before, But there is a sense here in the city of a parochialism, not to get into too much city politics, but there's so much tension between the public sector and the private sector. And it's so unfortunate because we're also an incredible brain trust here in Seattle with the type of corporate brilliance, right, that we attract. Yet the opportunity to solve problems and make this a greater city than it is through the brains of the private sector, they seem disconnected from the public. Um, they are disconnected, and I think it goes both ways. I think the city council um, tends to be combative about embracing business and having a real dialogue, and then some of the larger corporations, you know, need to participate and step up as well. It's so. A lot of it is in the realm of rhetoric. I think there's obviously, um, when there's so much of a, a win-win potential, you know, and you're, obviously your focus is gardens and um, public-private collaboration around gardens. Okay, so <laughs> let's take example, Chihuly Gardens and Glass. Great. That's a public, I mean, there are real concrete lessons to be learned there. Okay. The Space Needle's privately owned. Most people do not realize that. The um, Who's the, the, who's the owner of the Space Needle? The Just... Wright family, who actually developed it. And this after the World's Fair was over, they're like, we don't know how to operate this. You guys built it. Why don't you take it and run it? So that was, you know, a real dialogue. They couldn't afford to maintain it at the time. And so... And if I can interject, it's also the icon of the city. So it's a great example of success, right? If, if there's any sort of place that is emblematic of Seattle, it would be that, and it's a public-private partnership. Exactly. Yeah. And... It is run for profit, but then from that profit, the rights are extraordinarily philanthropic, and then the Space Needle Corporation itself also contributes directly to other public projects. As an example, they contributed a million dollars north of the needle for the large playground on Seattle Center. So they were able to leverage that first million dollars for other private donors and public monies through the state and various foundations. So that was a $2 million expenditure that benefited directly from the vision of the rights and um, their contribution to that place. And it, I will say, as the father of an active eight-year-old, it's a playground nirvana. I mean, when we get a chance to go there, it's incredible. So anyhow. And so then Chihuly Gardens and Glass celebrates Dale Chihuly, who is a local artist. And, you know, some people love him, some people hate him. You know, just because he's here and he's successful. I like the art. <laughs> and I'd seen the art in various installations before the idea came up. Um, and so I embraced it, and we were lucky enough to be at the table at the time. And so we helped develop it. So the entire site was uh, almost two acres. And so the rights paid for all that development around the garden. Mm. It also has free memberships to the Seattle school system, and then they do lots of philanthropy there. Many people will not be aware, but many of the local arts institutions are allowed to use the space once a year for their own fundraising efforts. And so they're just very conscious of making it a community asset. So I wanted to talk about complexity Nature is complex, right? When you, one of the wonderful things about going to the natural is to, you know, it, it's like the human body. It's, an, it's a sustainable, complex system, right? That is endlessly fascinating. As a garden and landscape designer, you know, when you're creating gardens, you have to kind of replicate. It would seem to me there's a virtue in that complexity because it creates 
a feeling that you can't get in most manufactured systems. Exactly. So I'd love to hear your perspective on sort of complexity as it relates to your vision as a designer of gardens. Well, as a person, I don't believe there are simple answers to anything. And I think that the last political election was an example of that. I mean, we would all love to hear that there are simple answers. They're not. The issues that surround us today, both individually and as a society, are phenomenally complex. (laughs) And so, you know, I think the best leaders who really are able to solve problems embrace that. And so nothing is simple. We don't ever start from anything having a simple answer. And so the first thing we want to do is to get to know the individuals involved. Um, They have their own value systems, their own problems to solve, and we want to bring those two together. So any landscape we design is also an expression of the owner's values, as well as the, the issues that we have to deal with. Can you give our listeners an example of how the individual personality was executed or showed up in the, in the design of a landscape? I'm a people person. I like talking to people. I like listening to what they have to say. Um, One of the things that I do as a design professional is I also try to listen to what they're saying between the words that are actually coming out of their mouth. And those are nonverbal cues. Those are as we get to know someone, if we're dealing with an existing residence, what it looks like, what style it's designed in, how it's decorated, and how the people live in it, who they're inviting into their lives, because some of the clients we work with are very introverted, and they're not sharing their spaces. And others are exceptionally extroverted. And so who is coming into that space with them? Is it just family? Is it friends? Um, Who are those people? Uh, What are they doing in the space? Is it about quietude? Is it about athletics? Is it about active use? Are they leveraging the space if they're a very wealthy client to raise money in? Uh-huh. Because some of our gardens are regularly used for philanthropic events. And we've had Barack Obama entertained in our gardens and when he was a president and then uh, Jill Biden recently. So that's exciting for us because that space is being leveraged around the client's values and what it. they believe in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really fun to see how the family uses it, and particularly young children. You know, I grew up very, very, very humble beginnings outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, It's ironic because now we're doing a new public garden addition two miles from where I grew up in Crestwood, Kentucky, which is fun. But you have to be able to hear what a client is telling you without them telling it to you directly. And so that's just being quiet and listening and listening to how they say things and what they say and how they frame their desires and their ideas. We try to be incredibly collaborative. We're not a firm that shows up believing that we have the answers and that we want to tease things out of them so that their garden is a reflection of who they are as people, not just is there a grill? Is there a terrace? Is there a swimming pool? Is there a spa? Is there a sports court for the children? You know, how, where do you wipe your feet when you come to the front door? So all of those things. So you really spend time listening and talking. We really client, try yeah. to spend time and listening yeah. to talking to people. 
because then it becomes very personal. I mean, my garden is on the website, and it is not a garden that we would ever do for our clients. It's incredibly quirky with lots of found objects. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, so we were talking about complexity and garden and landscape, and so the part of the complexity is the person, right? Their personality and also the function that they're going to put that space to, but there were some other components as well. Well, we're often dealing with other team members, an architect, interior designer, a structural engineer, a civil engineer, we have to decide where the water is going to go and how it's going to be recycled within the system. The local zoning codes are getting increasingly more and more stringent. And so I think that there is a trend in landscape architecture to answer the questions of the zoning, but to not come up with elegant solutions within that. Um it was really interesting a couple of years ago. Our next book is going to be on sustainable features for private gardens. And we think of that mostly around the use of water. So as an example, I started thinking about this. Many of our clients live on water in Seattle. That could be the Puget Sound. It can be Lake Washington. It could be Lake Union. It could be a tributary, um, one of the rivers. And in the past, there was a, a strategy and a value system that said, armor all those shorelines. Mm-hmm. I don't want my land to go away. Mm-hmm. And since the firm was founded nine years ago, we have restored almost five miles of shoreline. Mm. And that is because some of the clients really care about habitat, Mm -hmm. and others just want to take their paddleboard in the water in a comfortable way. Okay. Or have their children swim in Lake Washington. So by restore, then it's taking away these bulkheads um, and then connecting the land to the water in a connecting way that— Connecting the land to the water, putting the beach back, allowing the salmon to spawn in it, plant those edges with predominantly native plants because that's what both federal and state regulation says. But you can do that in elegant ways. Okay. So there is a general trend toward native plants. Just, you know, it's sort of the value system, I guess, of our zeitgeist. You know, we want to have local food and— Local plantings. I'm just kind of curious, is that a trend? Is that something that... It is a trend nationally. It's not one that I always um, buy into. So we have a very narrow, usable flora to incorporate into our spaces in Seattle. Uh And the reason for that is, like, we were the last to glaciate. (laughs) And so as the glaciers retreat, then speciation or diversity within native ecologies has to have time in order to create diversity. We're a summer dry climate. Um, And so that adds other uh, complexities. These plants are very sensitive. Um, They can't be over-irrigated. They take a long time to establish. I think native plants are not always the solution. Huh. So... Can you give some examples of some recent work where you embrace non-native plants? as Well, you know? the waterfront itself is going to have areas where we're using native plants, and that really is about the story of interpreting what the native peoples, how they lived on the land. But then other areas are about the influx of plants from Asia. Asia did not glaciate. So temperate floras there are much bigger and much more complex. So that's why huh, we fascinating. often huh. bring plants in from China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, etc. And so we don't recreate nature. So does that typology for the Waterfront Project, is that meant to mirror human, you know, sort of immigration and sort of... Yes, the, it oh, is. Huh. There are eight individual themes along the waterfront, and they have to do with what district they're in, 
and who's maintaining them because there'll be four different entities maintaining the waterfront. Oh, my God. And people want to see flowers and attractive things. And so, and when they do, then typically vandalism goes down, crime goes down. If you take care of the environment, people respect that. It's been proven again and again and again. And New York City has done most of the work around that. Uh, You can look at all the parks in New York. And so that activates the whole community's interest in the space. And for the most part, the community becomes more respectful of that space. Huh, okay. So... There are very specific themes. In Pioneer Square, the palette is the simplest because that neighborhood wanted the London plane trees to be the predominant canopy tree. Um, and so the streetscape there is populated with those. Is that because historically those that's trees Because were historically that's what is seen all over Pioneer Square. Okay. Oh. And then as the streetscape moves north, there are various themes that happen, and it's hard to talk about without the visuals in front of us. Um, you can actually go to the waterfront, the Friends of the Waterfront Seattle website, and all of this is there. Great. And then the most dense part of it is the area that is in front of the piers, which we call the historic piers. And the gardens will be very complex and very deep. And when you're in those spaces, it's going to feel like a public garden in the middle of the city on the waterfront. Wow. So does the width of the sort of opportunity for gardening that also is exactly increase? it. Uh-huh. So as you move from Pioneer Square on Alaska Way North, you're very close to the water, and then when you hit the area or from basically the what we call the transportation mode, the ferry terminals, um, it starts to widen out because the Alaska Way is moving to the east, and so the square footage of what uh, we could work with was much bigger. So that is fascinating. Yeah, horticultural complexity, but it also mirrors immigration and just the physical So there'll be lots of interpretation around this when the project is completed. Wow, how wonderful. What do you think about the pea patches that we have sprinkled throughout Seattle? I think they're great. I mean, there's a long tradition of that. The West Coast has embraced that more than the East Coast. You know, it's an idea that was brought over from Europe. You know, pea patches in England are passed down from generation to generation as well as other parts of Europe. Are they in public areas or? Yeah, they're in public areas. They're just like they're set up here. Um, And so it gives people a direct contact with living and growing things and how the food cycle works. Or even if you're just going to grow cut flowers in it, you know, you have to understand when to plant those, what a plant does during a growing season, et cetera. So anything that we can create contact with how the world works is important. So you worked years ago on the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, is that right? We did. As an urban vegetable garden? It was an herb garden, and it was being displaced by a new visitor center. And um, it was a very traditional quartered plant, meaning a square with a cross path through it. And um, the visitor center was going directly on top of it. And so they took a parcel of land against Flatbush Avenue, and it was very long and narrow, and they wanted to update the aesthetics of it. Um, And there was a berm that was for sound protection that the Olmstead brothers had installed after their father had died because Flatbush Avenue was incredibly busy and noisy even then. Wow. (laughs) And so we cut into the berm and made a flat space, and it's very modern. So it's a long, sinuous wall with an overlook, and then the composition itself is um, very asymmetric and curvilinear. Sounds like worth a visit the next time. It's fun. And they grow not only herbs, but 
um, and a whole range of herbs, medicinal herbs, culinary herbs, um, dye plants, and then what had not been done in the old herb garden was now there are vegetables. Um, and, it, and every year there's a different theme chosen. So. so you mentioned earlier that there's evidence that when people are around gardens, that crime and sort of just overall misery goes down and happiness increases. So do you have any insights about the mechanics of that? Like, what is it? Or there's maybe research, you know, but what is it that causes... Well, being around plants plant? and seeing how the world operates. Like, I'm East German... In my heritage, I'm fifth generation. My great-great-grandfather settled in the Ohio River Valley, right on the Ohio River, an alluvial floodplain, and they grew market crops. I mean, tomatoes, green beans, broccoli, cabbage, all those things. So as opposed to agronomic crops like soybeans and corn and things like that. So I was exposed to it from the time I was very small. And so I had a passion for both plants and animals as I grew up, I went to school at North Carolina University with the idea of I would manage plants. I was did not grow up in a setting where I was exposed to design on any level. And then I was taken to see my first real garden. It was a colonial revival rose garden. How old were you? I was, so I was 20. Okay. And um, it was the most important of historic roses in the South. And it was these beautiful formal rooms. Um, it was all based on the aesthetics of Williamsburg. And by rooms, these are exterior spaces? These defined. are exterior walled garden spaces. Okay. And it was just extraordinary. I mean, to be in that place with the fragrance and the modulation of scale from paths to large walled gardens and small places. And then, and it was really amazing because it kind of changed my life. I went back, I changed my major, and then I started studying landscape architecture at that point in the School of Design at North Carolina State University. And so it's that interface between horticulture and formal design and then how you take care of it all, um, which is, it's endless. I mean, you know, if you're going to commit to a garden either privately or publicly, it has to be maintained. Mm -hmm. These are not nature. I always say gardens are not nature. Mm -hmm. Gardens are our cultural bias imposed on nature, and that can be both positive and negative. We all understand what we've done to places that are, you know, causing global warming, et cetera, like that. But there are so many styles and so many ethos around that. I think what people are really beginning to see, and one of the things that we're trying to practice and was of interest on the waterfront is the High Line is the best example because people have seen it. They've been to New York, and I call it ecological planting. Um, it goes back to nurserymen in Germany, in Potsdam, Hans Pregel and Karl Forster. They're, they got interested in a philosophical way to use plants that were working with nature. And so as opposed to the English style, planting delphiniums next to a sedum, which have totally different water needs. They said, well, why can't we plant things from the same ecology? They don't have to be from the same nativity, but they can come from the same ecologies, meaning you could rely on flocks from North American prairies or aconitum from Northern European meadow situations or something from China. So those plants all have the same cultural needs, and it does reduce maintenance. And that's what has been practiced on the High Line. So Pete Outoff did that planting design 
in collaboration with James Corner, and it's kind of changed our perception of what public places can be. How do you keep plants like that watered and... Everything they're, they're has not, an irrigation system. And the roots uh, from not a, overcrowding their spaces. and Well, so there you're um, applying an aesthetic. You want it to be beautiful and floral and delight people. I think one of the things that is coming back to design in general is beauty and joy. That's always been part of uh, my own set of values. Um there's a modernist garden designer who died, and I had the opportunity to meet him. He was Brazilian-based. His name was Roberto Burley Marx. Um, he designed jewelry and theater sets, and he sang opera, and he painted, and he made gardens. And he worked with the landscape as if it were a modern cubist or abstract painting. And you cannot be in those spaces without smiling and feeling mm. joy. Mm. Um, they're beautiful, they're playful, they're fun, they're inspiring at every level. And I think that's what projects like the Highline and Millennium Park have shown people, that the value of having those spaces for retreat and delight in the city relieves the pressure of what it is to live in a, in a harried city. Mm-hmm. The Highline is now the number one attraction in New York so City. So the delight factor is multiplied, I think, by the you know civilization and its discontents. The challenge of living among concrete and buildings is it amplifies the joy, right? There's an opportunity to really amplify it because of the scarcity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary that this free and open space is the number one attraction in the city now. It's and amazing. And hopefully yeah. the waterfront here in Seattle will be the same. If the Pike Place market attracts five to six million people a year, what is the waterfront going to do upon completion? Mm, really fascinating. Yeah. So another sort of cultural influence in the Pacific Northwest is Japan. And so it's I've always been interested in that culture's approach to landscape where it really isn't a natural place. It's highly managed and highly manipulated. Yes, it um, is. A lot of my own touchstones come from Northern Europe. My heritage is Northern Uh European, Uh you know, and then also our modernist bent comes out of South America and Roberto Burley Marx, Mm -hmm. and then also the modernists who were practicing in conjunction with him, Garrett Ekbo and Dan Kiley, famous landscape architects on the East and West Coast. There is no doubt that because we live on the Pacific Rim, in California, Oregon, and Washington State, we are heavily influenced by all of the aesthetics. We tend to think of the Japanese aesthetic most, but as well Chinese. Um, It's really fun if you're in Portland to go to both the Japanese garden and the Chinese garden because they're entirely different sets of values and aesthetics. And the Chinese garden, the Chinese aesthetic is much, much more complicated and it is less relaxing and more about really showing off. So there is a tendency to export natural stone, but use them in highly contrived but very dramatic ways. And so you can see that around the water feature in the Chinese garden. And then much more pattern in the walls, which is all based on various symbologies. Those patterns are not at all random. Um, you know, It takes an incredibly deep knowledge to interpret that. We have done what I call Asian-inspired gardens, but when you really talk about the breadth of what 
um, the Japanese garden is about, it's about many, many, many movements. It's not the same. You have the stroll garden and the Zen garden, and they mean very different things, and they evolved at different periods of time, separated by hundreds of years, not a few years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the last of the Japanese empire was during the Edo period, which was corresponding to what was happening in England and America with the Victorians, which was overblown. Again, lots of color, lots of pattern, you know, over-the-top, crazy. So what we have brought into our aesthetic in North America is really based on the modest architecture as well as the temples, the the low-slung buildings, the long roof overhangs to live in the weather because you have to remember in Japan, those buildings were not heated. Mm. It's a very mild climate for the most part in middle and southern Japan. Um, you get to the north and it gets quite cold. Um, so it was about weather protection um, and then that linkage to the landscape. And you're right, um, it all has to do with their religions and the symbology and predominantly around the warrior and wealth and ruling class. Mm -hmm. And so the landscapes are abstracted ideals of nature in order to study culture, poetry, music, and meditate. Oh, okay. So it's, yeah. Complex. I mean, it's very, it's much more complex <laughs> than people think it is. Yes. But, you know, you start to delve into that and it's cool. And many of those gardens are actually in temples. And so the monks were developing those aesthetics and building those gardens and using them as places of contemplation. Wow. So it's so much more embedded than just saying, how does it influence us? And I think that's what's so extraordinary. I mean, we begin to borrow those ideas, um, and certainly the modernist architects did here in Seattle. Um, Single-story buildings, long overhangs, um, terraces that link directly to the living room and the um, the dining room so that you flow out into the space and you use it. Because when you look at, say, Georgian Revival, those are stiff, formal buildings, and they were intended to impress you, and they were intended to be a statement, and the gardens were intended to be looked at and strolled through, but not live in the way we live in gardens today. Gotcha. You didn't go out there and have a barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So I asked our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest, something very special for you. Is there any place that comes to mind? Um. I love to go up to a Mount Rainier in paradise in July because that's when all the alpine plants are in full bloom. And that's really fun. Oh, uh -huh. um, I like that. I mean, I actually love Timothy Hole's Chapel of St. Ignatius at Seattle University because I love the beautiful curvilinear forms and the fact that that chapel is so intimate and beautiful and just makes you feel really embraced. Mm. And I really love the sacristy, which Linda Beaumont, local artist, had helped develop. Mm. It doesn't have the same impact as it did when it was built because she dripped the walls in the sacristy with beeswax. And in the early days, you could go in and smell it. Mm. It was just so all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. The smell, the, the curving roof forms, the way they use the light. You know, it's just a place that inspires... Every sense. Mm. And that's at Seattle University. And that's at Seattle and University. And it's, again, it's, it's free. It's, it's open, open to, the, to the, public. the public. And I would encourage you to go, yeah, our listeners to go check it out if you haven't. It's yeah. a profoundly beautiful piece of architecture. Oh, I really appreciate your pointing that out because it's right in our midst. 
So, well, good. Well, you brought in an object um, to share, and I'm opening it up. So, yeah, Tell as a designer, uh-huh. I love things. I always say I have a dense aesthetic. And this is what we give our clients and partners on an annual basis. Okay. Um, that was last year's gift. It is a handmade piece of fruit from Impruneta, Italy, by a set of artisans that have been making terracotta objects and containers for five generations. <laughs> and I like it because it's about nature. It's about nurture. It's an ob- It's always a piece of fruit or vegetable. Um, so those sustain us in our daily life. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful object that is created by a person, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's of the earth, which is what I deal with every day in my own landscape architecture practice. It's just beautiful. Thank you yeah. for sharing it. Well, good. Well, I was very moved when you talked about the, kind of the epiphany that you had when you were 20 and you walked into those rose gardens and it really changed your course of life. And I just, it kind of moving forward, you mentioned paradise as a place to that you love to go here in the Pacific Northwest. But it occurred to me that the word paradise comes from Persia and it relates to a walled garden. And many religions, you know, spiritual paths sort of have a garden as maybe the place of the world to come, certainly Islam, you know. Um, and so does Christianity. Christianity. Uh, Judaism has a garden of Eden yes. at the beginning of time as well. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that maybe in our imagination, it is a heavenly place. It is a heavenly place. I mean, I think that is what I value most about what we do. Because there are lots of ideas and problems to solve, but if you can walk into a place and own that and make it yours for the time that you're in it, then we've been successful. Actually, what I tell my staff is we don't make places. Ultimately, we're reimagining physical form. But At our core, what I like to believe is that we make crucibles for people to come and be in and bring all of their expectations and joys and values and even sorrows and personalize it. And they walk away with something more than they came into the space with. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Edward. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us for another episode of EK on the Go. Daniel Gunther is our sound engineer, photography by Brandon Williams, and administrative support from Mary Christine. We're recorded here at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in the University District. To learn more about Richard's practice, visit landmorphology.com or follow them on Instagram, and you can sign up for Zoom classes to learn more directly from Richard. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you know of a place in the Seattle area that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.